Hello, Paul here. Before we start the episode, I have to make an apology for the terrible sound quality on my part this week. We have asked uh, Johan Remkes to conduct a full investigation into how this could have happened, and it turned out that I had no active memory of plugging in my microphone into my computer. Uh, so, no full world championship points for me this week. Um, again, my apologies. I'm very sorry, but hopefully you'll still be able to enjoy this episode. <music> It's Friday, October the 14th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darach, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Giant Outdoor Virtue Signaler, and I'm joined by Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Glass Door Botherer. Unfortunately, I know what my job title is yeah. about, uh, but I'm very curious to hear what your job title is. About. Well, this refers to a proposal by uh, the, the political party D66 in Amsterdam. Ah, yeah. No, yeah, no, no. Uh, you see, I, I thought when I said that the penny would drop. Yeah, <laughs> as you know, the World Cup is um, happening in Qatar in about a month's time, and uh, hmm. everyone is very concerned. Well, there's been a lot of criticism of UEFA and the organisers and the countries involved uh, for the fact that you know thousands of uh, migrant workers have died in Qatar building the stadiums, and it's a stupid place to hold a tournament, and the country's got a terrible human rights record, and so on. All sorts of things that. Deza Zesta, uh, as a good progressive liberal party, is very concerned with. So they came <laughs> up with a great idea this week uh, for how to kind of square that circle of the fact that people want to go out and watch the football on giant screens when the World Cup is on, although perhaps not because it's November. They're proposing basically that when we watch the football outdoors on the giant screens, drinking Heineken, that we should also have, like I don't know, like videos or intermissions about human rights. Yeah. It's a classic sort of um, yeah, Deza Zesta move to kind of do something terrible but soothe their consciences at the same time <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i think what they're proposing is to have next to the uh, outdoor screens which i don't know are we going to do that i mean it's the middle of winter uh, yeah. i don't see anyone standing uh, on, the, on the market square watching football but that's okay but if that's the case then uh, there should be a billboard next to it informing the public that what they are watching yeah. you can't really do that <laughs> you shouldn't really watch this that's, yeah, yeah, that's you, what you the... shouldn't be watching this at all no, yeah, no, yeah no, you no. should be feeling the, yeah just, just a billboard saying i hope you're feeling terrible about yourselves yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's basically what they're proposing yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it will, will not have any impact whatsoever. But no, it's um, kind of billboard washing, isn't it? Really, yeah, it's kind yeah. of it's a way of giving people a license to either you know do what uh, some countries have already done and just say we're not going to send a delegation, we'll just send the sports team. But you know, a lot of advertisers as well have said they're not going to advertise during the World Cup because they're uneasy with Qatar's human rights record. But just to kind of you know say put a poster up and then carry on as normal. Yeah. You kind of reference a very good cartoon. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost as if uh, uh, we're watching a parody of, of a typical Desa thing. Yeah, yeah, but it's reality. Um, do we know what the Dutch government has decided on, uh, on, on going to Qatar or not? Have they actually made a decision yet on that? No, Qatar? <laughs> no they haven't, exactly. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah Margaret has said in Parliament uh, last week uh, that uh, they still had to decide, and there's four yeah. weeks left to make four a decision. Left. And yeah. I'm guessing the price of tickets is going up all the time, so... I think so too. Yeah. yeah, even though a motion that was uh, 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 that passed through Parliament that called on the government not to go. Yeah, a uh, year ago. 
Yeah, that was a year ago. Yeah, year and ago, uh, yeah. the government still hasn't decided what they're going to do. So, uh, yeah, it's um, yeah. Are they going to do the democratic thing or not? Basically, and yeah, listen to they Parliament. shouldn't. They shouldn't go there. No, no, I don't think they will. Yeah, no, yeah. And on the subject of kind of a big glass erections, uh, what's been happening um, in uh, in the world of Emil Rattelbund uh, this week, Paul? <laughs> yeah, Emil Rattelbund. I think we talked about him way too often on the podcast but, yeah, it, is but it was either this or talk about Thierry Baudet again yeah, so. yeah yeah well to be honest it's a catch 22 in this case <laughs> or a catch minus 22 in this yeah. case uh yeah Emil Ratelband is this positivity guru that has uh earned his money with motivational speeches it is basically a, a complete idiot <laughs> I think the last time we talked about him was uh when he I went to court to reduce his legal age by two decades because he yep. uh, wasn't successful enough on Tinder. Yeah, he couldn't get women to date him, basically, and he thought that lopping 20 years off his age uh, yeah. was going to fix it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and this time he has uh, done it again. He's on Twitter and he has recently came out as a, a Cherry Baudet supporter, basically. Yeah. Um, he, he recently also said that Hitler was right 90% of the time mm. <laughs> in response to uh, him defending uh, his, his his support for Thierry Boudet, which yeah. was an interesting choice. But okay. I mean, to be fair, I mean, we're all kind of right 90% of the time, aren't we? Because 90% of the time, all we're making decisions about is sort of what to buy at the supermarket. Oh, so you... that's, yeah, I think so, yeah. So even Hitler was probably right on those criteria. It's just the big stuff, like whether or not to invade Poland. That he got wrong. Yeah, or exterminate <laughs> a group of people. Um, yeah. I don't. Th- I, I. I. I'm now imagining bumping into Hitler in, in at Jimbo, <laughs> but yeah, that <laughs> would be an even worse experience than the music they they, they played there. Um, I don't know what we're talking about. Yes, Emil Ratband. Uh, he was on Twitter this week and he called Vladimir Putin a great statesman, mm. and he was basically criticizing the West for intervening in 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 the. Uh, Ukrainian conflict there, but he also said that the EU should retreat from Ukraine, uh, which uh, suggests that he doesn't know what he's talking about, since yeah. the EU doesn't have a presence there whatsoever. I mean, uh, Guy Verhofstadt has has left uh, many years ago, but um, that reminded me of uh, that time he he was on one of the daily talk shows, and he is a positivity guru, right? And he says if you want something, you should just want it and then it will happen hmm. uh, and he was demonstrating that by running through a glass door on live television he said yeah. i want to do this so i will manage this and he tried that i think four or five perhaps six times uh, failing and yeah that was one of the most glorious two minutes on dutch television i think <laughs> yeah and it doesn't work because i want emil rattlebunt to just shut up and stop saying stupid things on twitter <laughs> but yeah however hard i want that it just doesn't happen right? just believe so, just believe yeah i just need to believe a little bit harder yeah but it's kind of interesting i think that the um uh, all the trolls seem to be coming back out again also all the putin bots have come back since the uh, bombing of the Kerch bridge including people like uh, rattlebunt and um pierre Baudet, who were studiously avoiding talking about and uh, Rattlebunt's contribution was just one of the most ridiculous of the last week. Uh, I'm just glad that Emil Rattlebunt wasn't in charge of bombing the Crimea bridge because uh, if, he, if he wanted to do that, it would have probably not happened. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, moving on to weightier matters, uh, what is the op for the week this week, Paul? Yeah, it comes from the Financiële Dagblad. Uh, that newspaper wrote on Monday that dozens of asylum seekers in Utrecht had quit their jobs as soon as they were granted regular housing. Moving from the asylum c- centre system to an actual address meant that they were, uh, were entitled to benefits, 
And the suggestion from this article was that uh, these asylum seekers prefer to live from government money instead of uh, working. And this news led to outraged reactions on the internet, both from outright xenophobes as well as from others that feared that such decisions are disastrous for newcomers' integration into Dutch society. It should also be noted that Utrecht also has a history with asylum seekers and housing because uh, I believe in the spring it was uh, decided that all social housing would go to asylum seekers that were on a waiting list. Uh, in asylum seekers. Yeah, asylum seekers who've been granted asylum, right? What they call status holders in the Dutch status system. Holders. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So people who are entitled to social housing, but there's such a long waiting list that they basically decide, I think, to sort of clear the whole social housing for a short period. Was it was it a month or something like that? Uh, they were planning on doing it for multiple months, but uh, yeah. uh, only one and a half months was uh, required. to uh, Exactly. So for six weeks, they basically sort of paused uh, the social housing and um, cleared the backlist of um, uh, status holders, and then everything was back to normal did mean that uh, other people who were, were waiting for years for social housing had to wait longer. But, they uh, did, yes. That was part of the, part of yeah. the OPEF. Exactly. Questions were asked uh, in the municipal council about this uh, article, but in answers from the gemeente, it turned out that this had indeed happened, but not with dozens of people, but only six, all of whom had worked at the same fast food restaurant. Uh, this didn't stop VVD MP Thierry Aarsen from asking questions about the article in the Tweede Kamer's question hour on Tuesday, which in turn led to more upheft because he was accused of using xenophobic sentiments instead of uh, sticking to the facts. Hmm. The real number of job-quitting asylum seekers was later corrected to even less, namely three. So uh, not a huge problem. I mean, hmm. if this was indeed the case with dozens and dozens of people, then it's fair to say, I think, uh, that that is a problem. But yeah, only three. I mean, yeah, we have uh, bigger fish to fry, uh, I think. Currently yeah, in although this not at that fast food restaurant uh, no, where, they, no. where they're no longer working. <laughs> they won't be frying food there. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're curious as well that they all worked at the same place. That suggests that might be the issue, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And what could also be the case is that these people have this so-called zero-hour contract, right? Yeah. That, uh, you're only called in uh, when the restaurant needs you. Uh, so that does mean that you do not have a steady income. So yeah, there could yeah. be a number of, uh, of reasons these people didn't want to work there anymore. But hopefully they will uh, they will try and find uh, another job because yeah, indeed, that is helpful for their integration into society. This week, the International Monetary Fund warns the Netherlands to prepare for another year of high inflation. The government turns up the coronavirus thermometer for the winter. Hans Feilbrief reiterates that the Kronia gas fields will only restart production as an absolute last resort, and Ajax take another tanking in Europe. So all doom and gloom, and if it's all getting too much and you're thinking of making a break for it, uh, one prisoner in Alfenanderijn gave a masterclass this week in how not to do it. Inflation in the Netherlands will remain high through to the end of next year, according to the latest forecast by the International Monetary Fund. The IMF predicts inflation will be 12% at the end of this year. Uh, remember, it was 17% in September. And next year, it will still be around 8%, which kind of means we're then getting into, you know, inflation on top of inflation territory. So not <laughs> looking good. And that's a much gloomier prognosis than the Dutch statistics agency, the CBS, uh, came out with uh, recently. They said inflation could be back down at 2.6% next year, partly thanks to the government's plans to compensate people for high energy bills. The IMF also said economic 
economic growth would shrink to 0.8% next year, and that's against 0.5% across the whole Eurozone, so the Netherlands is still doing slightly better. But that's down from 4.5% this year when the economy briefly picked up again in the six hours between the end of the pandemic and the invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> One silver lining is that unemployment isn't expected to surge because there's a job shortage, so that's another problem, but it will go up slightly to around 4%. Do you remember when we thought 2020 was the worst year ever? Yeah, uh, yeah, I know. And before that, we sort of thought 2017 was the worst year ever. Yeah, and before sure. that, we thought 1672 was the worst year. Yeah, the Rampiars are just uh, ramping up. <laughs> yeah, They're coming hard and fast. Rampiar inflation. Uh. IMF chief economist Pierre-Olivier Gorinchas said the global economy continues to face steep challenges shaped by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a cost of living crisis caused by persistent and broadening inflation pressures and the slowdown in China. Central banks need to keep a steady hand with monetary policy firmly focused on taming inflation, he added, staring very hard at Liz Truss. <laughs> Something that isn't inflating is the number of uh, seats the Conservatives has in the recent polls. Yeah, all this trusts chances of still being Prime Minister by the time we do the next podcast next yeah. week. There's yeah. a glorious video of um, her meeting uh, King Charles again. Did uh, you see this? I saw that, yeah. <laughs> what did he yeah. say? He just came in. He's, I'm kind of warming to King Charles, actually. He just has this sort of, sort of bumbling manner of just trying coming out with the first thing in his head. And when she walked in and sort of briefly said, nice to see you, he said, oh, you're back again, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, glorious it was. Yeah. Speaking of another Charles, mm. Klaas Knot, uh, what has he been saying about uh, all of this? Yeah, the head of the Dutch Central Bank has um, called on Dutch banks not to go crazy with issuing dividends this year. Hmm. So maybe just one wedge of cheese in the cash packet. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> not, uh, the DNB's latest financial stability report uh, was uh, actually uh, fairly positive. It said Dutch financial institutions are currently in a healthy position with solid buffers, uh, but uh, he is warning that the global economic situation is looking increasingly fragile and they shouldn't be just uh, giving away money uh, to their shareholders uh, in a hurry. And how Households, businesses and governments with high debts could face difficulties if interest rates keep rising and wages lag behind, Knott said, although he's also warned against wage inflation driving up prices. So he'd be a central <laughs> banker. Banks should keep their buffers above regulatory requirements as much as possible, he said, and exercise restraint in dividend payouts and share buybacks. Um, and the DNB has also extended a rule that requires Dutch banks to hold extra capital to cover their outstanding mortgage loans that will now run till December 2024. Amid concerns about a possible turning point in the housing market, house prices rose by 18% in the second quarter of 22. That's a year on year. That's one of the highest rates in the EU. And a British forecasting agency, Oxford Economics, said the Netherlands was one of the global housing markets most at risk of crashing, along with Australia, New Zealand and Canada. And I think in Australia and Canada, house prices already falling hmm. yeah in australia they're all upside down i believe i believe so yeah yeah, yeah. that as well yeah. bit of a problem but there are signs that the house price inflation uh, is coming to an end right yeah, it's been slowing down since the turn of the year when prices were rising by more than 20%. And in fact, the Estate Agents Association, NFAM, said their figures indicated prices had dropped by 6% just in the three months to September. So that mm. would be quite a turnaround. The number of transactions is also coming down. So fewer people buying and selling houses. That's declined by 10% in the second quarter, which is the fifth quarter in a row that sales have been down. Uh, so it certainly does look like it's turning into a buyer's market quite rapidly. At the same time, the rental market has also seen uh, increases in rents, although that varies a lot around the country. So in Amsterdam, new tenants are now paying 10% more on average than a year ago, but mm. uh, in out-of-the-way places like Delft, the increase is just 1%. 
So different picture in different parts of the country. The government's also looking to curb the rises in the free rental sector by making more properties eligible for rent controls and raising the tax on buy-to-let properties that comes in on January the 1st. Yeah, and uh, the cabinet has uh, decided to build, uh, what is it, uh, 900,000 new houses in 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 the near future. It said um, it will, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the plan. It did give Hugo de Jonge a, a, an excellent photo opportunity, though. Right. Uh, signing this check with 900,000 houses. Uh, I bet he loved so, that. Yeah, 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 he really loved that. You could see the smile on his face <laughs> that he uh, was enjoying this very much. Yeah. There are also some uh, other examples of businesses uh, getting into difficulties because of high costs, right? Yeah, well, first of all, financial experts are bracing themselves for a wave of bankruptcies in the coming year. One of the things we saw in the pandemic was a very low number of uh, companies going bust because um, you know, the government was subsidizing places that uh, were forced to close, like bars and restaurants. So in 2021, just over 1,500 businesses uh, went out of business. That's expected to grow this year by 9%, but then in 2023, it'll increase by 70 seven percent oh wow yeah, so yeah. Uh, yeah, you can really see the recession hitting home. One company that looks like it might be in trouble as well is an energy provider, Defe AP, which stands for De Freie Energie Partij. Sounds like a questionable political party uh, Emil Rautelband would found, yeah. Yeah, the 21st fraction, maybe. But it's bad news because they're the main supplier of heating to schools and local government, so it could have a huge uh, social impact. The Financiële Dagblad reported this week, uh, Defe AP has hardly sent out any invoices since May. So it's not actually earning any money. Schools have raised the alarm because uh, obviously that leads to huge financial insecurity for them. They have no idea how much money they need to keep back to pay their heating bills this year. And of course, if Dave AAP really is in trouble, well, it's very hard to find a new supplier at the moment yeah. because uh, they're not taking on new customers or signing new contracts. I think University of Amsterdam said uh, their heating bill was poised to triple next year because they can't get a new fixed contract. And of course, Gazprom Energy, which is another big supplier to the public sector, that's been blacklisted because of its links to Russia. So we were getting just into the start of winter and there are real worries that uh, your your local school might not have a contract uh, for, for heating, which is not good. Dave Ape's commercial operations director, Rainier van der Waal, said it was no secret the current energy market's been challenging for households and suppliers and told the FDA the company would resume billing shortly, but he wouldn't comment on reports from some of his customers that Dave Ape's been struggling with software issues and he was just very evasive about why they hadn't been sending out invoices. Hmm. The Economic Affairs Ministry, which regulates commercial energy contracts, said it had seen no indications that uh, suppliers were in danger of going bankrupt in the short term, but it is keeping its finger on the pulse so okay a lot of uh, bad things to look forward to um, yeah yeah, yeah. it yeah. all uh, looks uh, looks really gloomy and uh, yeah not very hopeful uh, yeah very kind of dismal winter ahead it would seem so uh, hopefully no uh, no Elfstedentocht this year The Parliamentary Inquiry Committee investigating the decade-long gas extraction in Groningen held its last round of hearings this week The exploitation of the massive gas field under the northern province had been very lucrative for the Dutch state for over half a century, but it also led to more than a thousand earthquakes uh, of up to 3.6 on the Richter scale since 1986, and that damaged thousands of homes and other buildings in the province. The problem was mostly ignored in The Hague for decades, but following a series of unusually heavy earthquakes, it was decided in 2018 to stop the exploitation of gas in Groningen in 2022. And this week, a number of ministers, including Prime Minister Mark Rutte and Shell CEO Ben van Burden, were questioned under oath by the committee. 
So quite a few um, heavyweights um, yeah, giving evidence this week, um, including um, Eric Vibus, who is the economic affairs minister who kind of uh, you know, um, uh, masterminded the whole decommissioning, right? Yes, you're right. Uh, he told the uh, committee there was simply no other decision possible for uh, the safety of Groningers when he made the decision to uh, stop the exploitation of Groninger gas. Uh, at the time, there was uh, uh, no fear of gas shortages, and it was believed that there were alternatives available for the gas from the northern province. Uh, a geopolitical analysis did speak of concerns about dependence on Russian gas, uh, but a war in Ukraine and its effect on the global gas market wasn't anticipated, he said. Uh, Wiebes also said that the loss of revenues didn't play a role in the decision, even though there is no denying that the gas extraction as a major source of income for the Dutch state had been taken for granted for decades. Uh, Wiebes also uh, initially uh, was responsible for the major reparation and reinforcement program for thousands of Groninger houses that were damaged due to the earthquakes. Uh, initially, this was all carried out by the NOM, that's the Shell and ExxonMobil joint venture that operated the gas extraction uh, but Rebus uh, was also responsible for deciding to cut the NAM out of the protest altogether uh, because many people in Groningen distrusted uh, uh, this company, uh, which, uh, you know, has, of course, a uh, financial interest in uh, paying out as little as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so um, and, 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 and there were a lot of instances when uh, a representative of the NAM uh, went to one of the houses in Groningen, uh, looked at the cracks and said, no, this can't possibly be. Uh, caused by earthquakes, we're not going to pay anything, and then just yeah. left. Uh, yeah, which uh, left a lot of uh, Groningen people disillusioned because um, uh, the, the cabinet had said that uh, they would be uh, compensated uh, for every bit of damage that uh, had been caused by it. So yeah. um, uh, uh, that led to a lot of opef, uh, and and uh, then it was decided to uh, to uh, install a, a yeah basically a government agency that mm -hmm. would determine. Um, uh, 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 damages and pay it out as well, um, but yeah, that uh, unfortunately that led to uh, uh, a lot of delays because you know they had to set up uh, this new agency. So uh, yeah, yeah, he was questioned about that, but yeah, there was, as he said, um, there was simply no other solution possible uh, anymore. Yeah, and uh, his um, uh, successor, the, the, the current uh, minister in charge of coining of uh, Hans Feilbrief, he was also very critical of the NAM, right? When he gave evidence, he said they put a lot of, uh, sort of um, uh, judicial obstacles in the way, basically, and they 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 contested every decision by the government in court, and they quibbled every single compensation claim, and he basically said that, you know, the way they behaved, um, given, you know, the amount of money that they'd earned from Kronia gas fields over the previous 60 years, was completely unconscionable. He was quite angry about it. I does seem to remember from looking at his evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Bibis was 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 angry as well. But yeah, yeah um, at that time there was uh, little uh, 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 little he could do other than. Uh, yeah, cutting out numb uh, from the process altogether. Yeah, but the gas extraction hasn't completely stopped, right? No, that's right. Um, um, it was decided to keep uh, eleven gas fields uh, at operational level at a very minimum rate. It was decided by the cabinet a month ago. Hmm. Um, the cabinet has been under pressure to increase gas production in Groningen again in fear of a possible gas shortage this winter and soaring energy prices. Despite, but despite this, uh, returning to old uh, production numbers will expose uh, Groningen to uh, irresponsible seismic risks. So, yeah, um, um, I think uh, if you if if we would be in the same situation ten years ago, uh, um, we would just. Uh, uh, open the gas field so yeah. without questioning right so yeah, yeah you could really see that um 
yeah, people have realized that uh, uh, the safety situation in Groningen. Yeah, yeah, so it's a real the, change in mindset, isn't it? Yeah, would have. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So despite this enormous gas shortage that we're facing, despite these enormous gas prices that we see, uh, yeah. we still say no. We will not increase gas production. We will leave it at the minimum rate. And why is that? Because uh, we do want to have a a a. Um, uh, a, a, a reserve ready if, for example, hospitals yeah. do not uh, can can't open because of a gas shortage, uh, yeah. and this applies to the Netherlands as well as Germany and Belgium. So um, they they call it the vacuum. I don't know if there's a, an English uh, word for yeah, that. Yeah, the 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 the, the, uh, the pilot light, I suppose you mm. call it. It's a little flame on your boiler, isn't it? It shows yeah. you that the, the the gas is running. Yeah. 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 That uh, uh, on a very low yeah. level uh, yeah. and in in in. Yeah, if it's um, uh, as a last resort, we can we can reopen these uh, these gas fields again, yeah. but only then in that case. Um, so this is will amount to a production of 2.8 million cubic meters, uh, which is allowed, which sounds a lot, but it's really really a very tiny fraction fraction of, of what we were used to uh, yeah. to extract from Groningen. Um, and yeah, that's just the number of uh, of gas that's uh, required to uh, to uh, keep vital infrastructure open uh, in case of calamities. Yeah, and finally on Thursday, uh, Mark Rutte, the Prime Minister, also gave evidence to the inquiry. Right? Yeah, he has been the Prime Minister since 2010, so he has really been the Prime Minister that was, as I said, uh, you know, uh, he started when we had this old mindset of, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, pump as much gas as we can. Yeah. yeah, because it's uh, it, it, we earn a lot of money and yeah. we uh, basically ignore all the problems that uh, that uh, Groningen people uh, uh, face. Uh, two, you know, the decision of closing the gas fields altogether, and now this new mindset of no, we need to 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 keep it shut uh, despite all the problems that we have around us. Um, he he told the committee that he only realized very late that there were very major safety concerns in Groningen and uh, that uh, the, the problems hadn't been on the radar for far too long. Uh, in 2013, the Staatstoezicht op de Mijnbouw, that's the agency supervising mining, urgently advised the cabinet to reduce gas extraction after a record earthquake of 3.9 on a richter scale uh, hit Huizingen, a village in Groningen. Mm. Um, but the cabinet decided initially to first start a series of, of investigations before acting on this advice. And Rutte said that in hindsight, he would have wanted that the cabinet acted on that advice, but he still maintains that it was justified then to ask for further, uh, to ask for further investigations and not reduce the extraction as a precaution. Um, he says that the number of unknowns at the time were just simply too great. Uh, he also called it painful that in the year, in that year, so in 2013, when that advice was given, gas extraction reached a record number. Uh, so yeah, as you said, pump as much as possible. Mm. Uh, that's basically what, what we did, even though yeah. uh, experts and uh, um, yeah, oversighting uh, committees uh, advised to. Yeah, uh, since there were warnings, <laughs> the alarm bells are kind of ringing, and he just didn't yeah. listen to them. And we would just yeah. uh, keep uh, keep going. Yeah. Um, also said that he feels sorry for the psychological damage people in Groningen and especially children uh, are suffering. Um, you know, decades of. Uh, having these earthquakes, seeing these cracks uh, appear in your houses, feeling unsafe in your houses, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's something that uh, uh, he feels really sorry for. And the committee also asked Rutte about a confidential memo that was sent to him by Shell in uh, 2016, but Rutte said he didn't know if he had received or read it, and also told the committee that the memo couldn't be found in the ministerial archives. 
calling it the great secret of this inquiry. So it's another case of Elgrutter's uh, active memory failing him. Yes, and uh, and his archival systems failing, and yeah, yeah, a lot of lot of the yeah uh, all of these typical, uh, all these informal meetings where no minutes get taken taking place yeah yeah, as well. yeah 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 so a lot of lot of lot of uh, number of criticisms on Rutte as prime minister came together in this yeah. uh, in this yeah one and a half minute of uh, of uh, uh, parliamentary inquiry the committee said that um, uh, they had received the memo from shell so they know what was in it uh, there it, it talked about talking points that shell wanted to discuss with Rutte and uh, also interestingly, intriguingly, on top of the memo, it read for the prime minister's eyes only, hmm. uh, which, uh, yeah, is, uh, sounds like a terrible James Bond. It does movie. a really bad James Bond knockoff, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. especially if that prime minister was Liz Truss. But um, uh, Rutte didn't, uh, uh, also didn't want to promise that the 26,000 houses that are currently in need of reinforcement will be made safe by the 2028 deadline. So, yeah, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, and... Rutte basically said that the problem, uh, the problems are so complex that it's impossible to fix them uh, uh, overnight. Uh, yeah. yeah, which we, I think, all understand that you can't fix twenty-six thousand houses overnight. But yeah, at the same time, uh, the problems has been mounting for for decades and decades. And yeah, um, yeah okay, a, a, a real mindset shift was needed uh, in order to address the, the, the these problems. Um, as they should have been, but yeah. Uh, in the meantime, a lot of people are frustratingly waiting for for decades uh, to have their houses fixed and yeah. Uh, yeah, to to regain that trust in the government. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and it I was kind of yeah, and it's kind of another example of the government being very slow to respond to a crisis. Like because the earthquake in housing was in 2012, right? But uh, Rutte said he hadn't. It didn't really appear on his radar. He, it hadn't been discussed in cabinet till 2013, even though at the time of the earthquake, um, you know, the uh, the mining advisory agency, the Staatsturzicht, uh, said, uh, you know, the, 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 this is an indication. They, they said quite clearly, you know, that this earthquake must be uh, somehow related to gas extraction. We should carry out more um, inquiries. And yet uh, that didn't actually happen um, for a good six months. And in the meantime, as you say, they'd ramped up production again. So just sort of yeah. blindly soldering on kind of chasing the money um without uh, thinking about the wider social consequences so and it's kind of a characteristic of Gritter's administration i think this uh, w- w- when a crisis appears on the horizon they sort of do everything you know that th- they can to that they procrastinate and, until yeah. it gets to a point when they can't ignore it any longer at which point of course a lot more damage has been done than necessary i think so a few people in the course of the inquiry have said if they hadn't made that decision in 2013 to pump up to to, to, to turn up the gas production when it was clear that they you know that the, they should be looking at the earthquake uh, taking the earthquake danger more seriously if they had actually kept production at a more sort of moderate level then we might still be pumping gas out of chronium we might actually have been able to um, bring it under control um, uh, rather than uh, reach the point where we're forced to decommission the gas field yeah yeah um, yeah the parliamentary inquiry committee is expected to uh, publish their final report in february 2023 uh, and next week uh, we will record uh, an interview with Sam Gerrits, that's an investigative journalist and geologist. He has been following the Groninger gas dossier for years, and he also has written a book about it. And we will talk about uh, uh, the background of the gas extraction with him, and also how it all could have been gone so wrong. And that interview will be released next Friday for our Patreon list. 
So if you do want to listen to some Chayet's insights into the Chronia gas dossier, and uh, his, uh, uh, then uh, this would be a good moment to uh, become uh, one of our patron uh, sponsors. You can sign up to sponsor the Dutch News Podcast uh, at patreon.com, and uh, in, as a way, way of thanks, we'll give you a shout-out on the next podcast and uh, try to answer your questions about life in the Netherlands. Um, this week, we have uh, one new patron to say welcome and thank you to, uh, which is Karina. So thank you very much for your Thank support you. anyone else who'd like to become a patreon sponsor and get access to uh, our, our exclusive content uh, in, including our summer special on the rampia and the upcoming interview um, on the chronia gas fields uh, go to www.patreon.com slash dutch news nl the coronavirus clock moved closer to midnight this week as the government raised the thermometer to defcon 2 um, they call it a thermometer, but it's not really a thermometer, is it? It's kind of like a, you don't turn up a thermometer, right? Uh, well, like you shouldn't. A, no, it's <laughs> a bad thing to try and do. Uh, it's more like a thermostat that's sort of supposed to regulate the spread of the virus oh, before yeah, yeah, things yeah, start yeah, to yeah, get yeah. uncomfortably hot. But uh, yeah. Anyway, it's on level two, uh, which is uh, called increasing. And what does it mean? Uh, well, um, according to the coronavirus dashboard, it means there is a higher uh, impact on society and healthcare, and vulnerable groups in particular are at risk um but health minister Ernst Kaupers urged people to stick to the basic rules and vulnerable people which is anyone over 70 or anyone who's got an underlying health condition that makes them susceptible to respiratory illness uh, to get the repeat vaccine and the RIVM said this week that everyone over the age of 12 will be able to book a jab within the next two weeks so expect another flood hmm. of uh, tweets um from the usual suspects. So remind us what the basic rules are, because the government is advising to stick to them, right? It is, yes, yes, but there aren't any, um, because uh, Parliament (laughs) abolished them. So um, instead we have basic advice now, rather than basic rules, and the advice is to uh, wash your hands, keep your distance, sneeze into your elbow, um, keep indoor spaces well ventilated, take a self-test if you feel sick, and stay home if you test positive. Although, of course, um, since these aren't actually rules, then it means that, uh, you know, your employer can still uh, tell you to keep coming into work. For example, um, Hege Day tests are only for people over 60 or those with vulnerable health. And um, yeah, Ernst Kaup has said there was no need to introduce any new measures, uh, but he also said it was a good thing that um, some people are doing them, doing it anyway, like hospitals that are bringing back face masks and shops that have uh, reintroduced uh, hand sanitizer. Because Curious are still so very obsessed with this whole business of keeping our hands clean, even though there seems to be no evidence at all that that's actually how the virus spreads. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> just a small aside um, so basically it's a classic Dutch gedoogbeleid basically we'll just yeah. tolerate the virus uh, circulating society and sort of if you feel like you should wear a mask then go ahead but we're not going to not going to insist on it which uh, seems like a perfectly sensible approach to take to a virus that's killed 45,000 people in two and a half years so speaking of numbers, um, <laughs> what are yeah. they looking like? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean they're going up. Um, although it looks as if the rate might be slowing down in the last couple of weeks. I sort of say that guardedly because we're just at the start of winter and uh, this is usually when we get the, the next wave. Um, but positive tests uh, were up 25% in the last week. Uh, we've got um, yeah, uh, 1,115 patients in hospital, which is a 22% rise, and uh, 46 people with coronavirus in intensive care. So... Those kind of tests and hospital numbers are sort of doubling around roughly every two and a half weeks. Um, so we're on course to have like about 2,000 coronavirus patients 
um, in hospital beds by the end mm. of the month. Um, and we're also seeing more hospital staff going off sick, which seems to be yeah. which is another um, yeah, quite predictable effect of coronavirus. So eight, just over 8% are currently absent from work, um, which is not encouraging either. And I have to say, among the vulnerable groups, positive tests have doubled in nursing homes in the last nine days, and uh, for over 70s who live at home, it's doubled in 11 days. So in those groups, uh, the virus does seem to be um, catching on faster. And the uh, Onderzoeksraad for the Veiligheid, the uh, yeah. Safety Council, has uh, released a new report about uh, the coronavirus uh uh, handling of the coronavirus by the government, right? Yeah, uh, the the uh, the OFFA has uh, was asked to was commissioned to write three reports into the, uh, the government's response, and the second one was published um, uh, this week. Uh, the OFFA is uh, headed these days by the most unpopular man in Spain, Jeroen Dijsselbloem, um, <laughs> so, but uh, uh, he's very critical uh, of the uh, the Netherlands uh, coronavirus response. Um, uh, like the first report, this doesn't make easy reading for the government. Um, our first report said that basically we've been unprepared for a major outbreak of infectious disease and there wasn't enough protective clothing available and the focus on keeping healthcare running led to what they called a silent disaster in nursing homes and other care facilities. Um, this time the OFFA was highly critical of the vaccination campaign. Uh, it said the government had boxed itself in by kind of assuming that family doctors would be able to administer the AstraZeneca vaccine but then when it turned out that Pfizer was going to be available sooner and it was more effective uh, they suddenly had to uh, set up this whole network of vaccination centers from scratch because uh, the Pfizer vaccine has to be kept at minus 70 degrees mm. uh, but they hadn't given any thought to this option at all so suddenly in mid-December they had to literally just come up with this plan um, and the first vaccines weren't available till mid-January as a result which was later than any other European country remember Hugo de Jong at the time saying uh, just sort of dismissively we're not going for symbolic pricks but it <laughs> seems that uh, yeah there, there were more pricks in the system um than, uh, than, than just the lack of jabs and then following uh, 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 him posing with everyone who got a prick yeah. uh, um, for <laughs> yeah. a photo opportunity yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. he really um, hates symbolic things yeah, yeah, yeah especially he's just really dead against it yeah yeah, yeah. um Yes, the OFFA also said the government had made almost no effort to monitor and analyze the pandemic control measures that it actually took so we they still don't really know if things like night curfews, wearing masks in public, shutting schools, keeping people apart in restaurants, limiting home visits or banning sales of alcohol after 8 o'clock actually have any effect at all. Well, um, a number of these measures, I can, it's safe to say that it doesn't have a lot of uh, impact. You think banning sales of alcohol after 8 o'clock doesn't, doesn't no, make no, any no, difference? No, no, that was the most impactful. <laughs> yes. uh, <laughs> on our especially mine uh, <laughs> just on your general mood. well-being yeah yeah exactly no uh, yes some of them seem like you know uh, yeah a no-brainer i mean uh, uh, this lockdown some people think are saying that it doesn't have had any effect but you know uh, i i really don't follow that because you know the whole thing, idea of lockdown is to reduce the number of uh, contact moments right yeah uh, that's the way you spread the virus and yeah that's what happened because everyone stayed at home so yeah naturally that has an impact um yeah but still you have to it's it's not a good sign of course that the government didn't yeah in any way monitor uh, or analyze these these effects um 
yeah, it's not very hopeful. It's also very strange, I think. Yeah, um, and it just seems that it's not what you expect from the Dutch government. You know, usually the CBS is uh, it, 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 uh, has meticulous records of all kinds of things, and you know they come up with forecasts to the nearest des- two decimal points of uh, what impact a certain measure will have. But they didn't sort of go back over and review it afterwards, which is curious. Could be that that they are counting on uh, the monitoring of uh, other countries. Yeah. Um, in order to uh, uh, yeah, determine the if impact of, of these measures, even though I don't know if any country had banned alcohol after eight o'clock. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah but, but even then, they, they really didn't, because, I mean, even when there was lots of research uh, being published saying that, uh, for example, face masks uh, made a difference to the rate of the spread of infection, you know, um, you had Jack van Dussel coming out and saying that the evidence was inconclusive. Mm. So uh, it just doesn't seem they didn't yeah. rely much on the international data either. But I think the point being the OFA making was that you know if you don't evaluate what it, what effect your measures have then how do you know which you know what steps to take the next time that there's an outbreak yeah. you know yeah, you yeah. want to make which your response sense. more efficient and you know if say something like the cur- night curfew which seemingly didn't well i mean there's i've seen arguments that it, it had almost no effect at all and it was an extremely unpopular measure led to rioting if that has a minimal impact then you might think well let's not do a curfew let's do something else yeah. that has is more effective and less disruptive I also remember that at some point everyone had forgotten, or at least the government seemed to have forgotten, that alcohol was banned at 8 o'clock. <laughs> yeah. uh, so every measure was sort of dropped except the 8 o'clock rule, uh, yeah. which only uh, people in the supermarkets were aware of, that it was still happening. Uh, yeah, there was there was one of the most crazy moments in, uh, in the pandemic, <laughs> I think. Yeah, apart yes. from the apart from the from the minks in uh, in Denmark, of course. Yeah, the so Denmark minks. Yeah, was brought, yeah, the minks that brought down the Danish government. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's a uh, that's a whole series of Borgen waiting to be written there. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the curious thing, I, the, the, you know, the infuriating thing I find is that all, all these measures that we took are kind of being packaged together and bundled up as kind of lockdown measures, right? So that uh, yeah. we have now the situation where the cases are going up. Again, but the government doesn't want to bring in things like you know you, you could bring in low interventions like you know just wearing masks in public again you know which, which don't actually slow down the economy or stop people doing anything it just means you've got to wear a piece of cloth on your face but they won't do it because there's, there's this mindset now that there's there's kind of a, an escalating effect right if you bring in yeah. masks this week it means you'll be shutting schools in six weeks time which the message i think should be more like if you know the, the way to make sure you don't have to Shut schools and theatres and um, you know, and, and, and restaurants. It's, it's to bring, it's, it, it, it is to, to bring in low intervention measures right now, um, yeah. like social distancing or face masks, uh, so that you don't have much more disruptive measures further down the line. Yeah, but we'll see what uh, happens over the rest of the winter. A super fast delivery warehouse store in Amsterdam West is the latest in the Dutch capital to be forced to close down. Judges upheld a council ruling that a branch of Flink on the Nassau-Kade was in contravention of zoning regulations and must close by Thursday. The Flash supermarket, which uh, delivers groceries to customers in a matter of minutes, initially tried to bypass zoning regulations by also allowing customers to pick up orders, saying that they are technically a supermarket instead of a warehouse. But the judge didn't fall for that. Mm. The super-fast grocery delivery warehouses are known as dark stores because they were initially blacked out. Uh, Its number grew substantially during the pandemic lockdowns in a number of Dutch cities, much to the annoyance of neighbors. The Amsterdam municipality received thousands of complaints last year about excessive noise around the 24-7 warehouses, as well as delivery vans taking up public space. 
delivery vans and electric bikes, which uh, yeah. delivery guys uh, typically which use. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In the latest court case this week, a judge ruled that there was no concrete prospect for legislation of the Nassau Gala store, uh, that Flink could not demonstrate how many of the store's customers came in person, and that it was primarily a warehouse for delivery. The store, the court uh, heard, made 400,000 euros per month, and more than 1,000 customers had visited in the past six months. However, the court found it created a greater impact on livability than a normal shop and ordered it to close within days. Um, yeah, speak, if if, um, uh, uh, if an impact on livability is really an issue, I think they should also ban uh, these uh, deal scooters, right? These yeah. Uh, share, yeah, sharing mobility uh, scooters. Uh, which uh, I don't know. Uh, I th- I'm sure in The Hague it's also a plague. Yeah, uh, here in Delft, we also Delphi have at least them. two or three different. Um, yeah, um, we also have two or three different uh, types of scooter uh, flying around. Yeah, and you see them yeah, everywhere. Yeah, you see them everywhere, and uh, yeah, the idea is that uh, anyone can pick them up uh, at any place, right, mm-hmm. and then go to uh, to their to then to a new location, but and then park them there, but. The, the reality is, is that it's just a rental agency that yeah. uh, uses the public space as uh, as their parking uh, facility. Yeah, so, basically. yeah, it's um, uh, if I look out of my window now, I see four or five of them blocking uh, blocking the pedestrian paths and yeah. uh, some of them in the canal. So yeah, it's uh, it's really I annoy uh, I find them very annoying. But yeah, I have I to say. Uh, when I go for a run, sometimes I see them uh, <laughs> on the side of the road, and uh-huh. I think, well, luckily I do not have a uh, subscription there because otherwise I would just uh, pick them up and go home instead exactly, of yeah. completing my run. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's also I'm also speaking out of uh, self-interest uh, totally. that uh, that they should be banned. Yeah, but, but they do just kind of litter the pavements everywhere, and you see them yeah. just part many old place, and uh, yeah, it's, it's it's become a real issue. I find them more annoying than these so-called dark stores. Uh, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, the two, yeah, the two kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Because, because, um, yeah, because it has led to uh, even more congestion on the cycle paths because these delivery bikes and uh, they often have like electric, uh, either e-bikes or electric scooters. You know, they buzz around, do their deliveries on. Um, yeah. yeah, and you're constantly getting harassed by them when you're when you when you're on the cycle lane. It is handy though if you forgot to got get some milk uh, uh, when you realize that at 11 a.m. Uh, 11 p.m. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, you just have, have some to delivered. say that I f- sometimes make use of their services. Uh, I have the shortest bet in sport paid out last weekend as Max Verstappen was crowned Formula One World Champion for the second year in a row at Suzuka in Japan. And it couldn't have been more different from last year's final lap drama with Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes team chef Toto Wolff having a total <laughs> meltdown uh, to everyone's uh, great entertainment. Uh, this year, Verstappen took the checkered flag for the 12th time in 18 races and clinched the title with four races still to run. But it wasn't without controversy and confusion. Um, firstly, in that regard, it was the same as last year. I think. In that regard, it was the same as last year, just, just four races earlier. Yeah. yeah, because the race took place, first of all, in absolutely teeming rain, torrential downpours in the Japanese monsoon season, which seems like a really bad time to have a uh, Grand Prix altogether, but no, but nonetheless. Um, and there are big questions about whether it should go I ahead mean, if, the we- if the weather is a, is a concern for Formula One, they would never drive in, in the UK. So Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah also. Um, yeah, um, so, so the big question is about whether it should go ahead at all. Um, when the drivers finally did get going, there was so much spray on the track that two cars 
immediately crashed out, and um, yeah, the, all the, the and the drivers of those cars then had a fairly hairy time because uh, other other cars just couldn't see them uh, on on the track. Um, and there's also a quite disturbing incident where a, a recovery vehicle was on the track before the cars had all gone back into the pit lane, which uh, obviously um, uh, triggered a lot of uh, memories among the drivers about an incident at the same track eight years ago um, where uh, a driver died because uh, he crashed into a recovery vehicle. Um, So uh, by the time they restarted, um, there were only 40 minutes left to complete the race because there's a two-hour race limit. So everyone assumed the drivers wouldn't be awarded full points for the race um, and that would mean that Verstappen wouldn't quite be able to get the points he needed to be crowned world champion. And it was only after the race had finished and Verstappen was actually giving media interviews uh, that someone popped up and said, uh, oh, uh, you're actually world champion, Max. And you had to completely sort of, you had to pull out the other script, the other script in his head so one, one minute he was saying yeah. well it's a shame that we, we we didn't manage to win the title at uh, Suzuka because you know Honda is our engine manufacturer it would be nice to win in front of the fans and so he said oh my god it's incredible it's amazing we won the title <laughs> at Suzuka in front of our in front of our loyal Honda fans it's amazing <laughs> Uh, why was it that all of a sudden he had won uh, the race? Uh, well, it's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, because um, the FIA, the, the, the governing body, confirmed that uh, there would be full uh, points awarded for the race because it hadn't been abandoned permanently, right? No. It had just, been, just yeah. been delayed. So even though they didn't, didn't they only ran, they, they, they only um, finished just over half the, the total number of laps. They still got. Um, uh, full championship points and also because on the very last corner of the race Charles Leclerc who was only Charles Leclerc who was Verstappen's only rival for the title uh, try, um, uh, was holding off Sergio Perez who's Verstappen's teammates he went off the track came back on again in front of Perez and that was deemed an illegal maneuver and he lost a, he was given a five second time penalty and that meant he yeah. lost just enough points to uh, to hand Verstappen the title yeah and it was really clear that nobody nobody had actually read the rules, right? Yeah. I mean, this, these new rules were uh, were introduced after uh, the Belgian Grand Prix last year, when uh, we had only four uh, uh, laps also in the rain, uh, and, and then, and then uh, behind the safety car were, as well. So it was literally behind the safety car, yeah. Yeah, and, and the half points were were awarded. So everyone thought, well, we need we need some new rules about that. Those were introduced, but nobody had actually read the rules yeah. because it said that the reduced points will only be rewarded if the race cannot be finished uh, uh, in time but yeah the, fin- the the race was finished in time so full points were rewarded but nobody f- from from the journalists i follow on twitter hmm. the, the the commentators both the, the 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 british the german the dutch everyone uh, but also the team bosses yeah. didn't and, realize and the drivers because the, the drivers, yeah, the no, drivers yeah. i mean they they are not thinking about of course the regulations but the the the, the team should do that, and they should yeah. communicate what, what, uh, uh, yeah, uh, what is happening uh, 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 based on these regulations. But they didn't realize that as well, because otherwise, uh, uh, what would Ferrari be saying to Leclerc if if uh, if they realized uh, uh, f- uh, the full points were rewarded? They would say, no, you you really need to uh, remain second, right? So nobody realized that, and yeah, it was only there was only one body, w- one person, one. Uh, entity that realized uh, what was going on. It was, that was the FIA. Yeah, uh, and th- <laughs> they were they were the only ones that were aware of the rules. Yeah, um, which is good because yeah. they're the ones who wrote them. So you would exactly, expect that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, everyone was saying, "What? What? What is the FIA talking about? It? Yeah. Uh, we should have reduced points, not full points." But yeah, yeah everyone was wrong. The FIA was right. Yeah, uh, it did mean that it was sort of an anticlimax of of the world championship, right? Because 
um, yeah, we all assumed uh, there would be uh, reduced points uh, awarded. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we didn't realize that that wasn't the case. Yeah. I, bl- I still blame the commentators for that, to be honest. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, I think it was a bit. Well, it was a bit. It was a bit strange, but I think uh, it, it was good. I think that uh, Verstappen did actually um, uh, take the title with a race win rather than just kind of trailing in eighth in Austin in two weeks' time. Yeah, which would have yeah. taken the gloss off somebody else's win. So I think it's nice in a way that uh, you know that the, the crowns a championship uh, with a podium finish. Um, well, that else. is the only positive angle you can think of. Yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I mean, it was inevitable he was going to win the title, right? I mean, oh if yeah, he, if yeah, he had right. won it this yeah. week, he was he, he would have been like two or three points short. So you know, it was an academic thing, really. That's right, but yeah, yeah. never say never because last year, of course, we also had a. Um, uh, a lot of people also never expected uh, Max Verstappen to win the championship. Yeah. Um, I still don't think he won it fairly, but uh, this this uh, this year he did it uh, uh, on its own merits. I yeah, think. The, the, there's no dispute some... really that he was the best no. driver over the yeah. uh, over the season. So um, celebrations for Max, but uh, a very sad weekend in the sport of motorcycle racing. Yes, it was because uh, Victor Stemann, uh, who's a 22-year-old rider in the Supersport 300 class, uh, he died this week um, after a, a serious crash uh, during a mm. race in Portugal. Um, he suffered a head injury in a pileup involving multiple riders in the, the race on Saturday. Uh, the race was immediately stopped. Uh, Stemann was given treatment at trackside and then taken to hospital in Faro. But on Tuesday night, um, sadly, he succumbed to his injuries. And World SBK, which is the sports governing body, said in a statement that Stemann was fiercely competitive, but also charismatic, polite and always with a sense of humour. Uh, Stamon was a rider with the MSM Kawasaki team and was uh, running second in the overall standings uh, for for the season going into the race. His family said uh, our victor could not win this last race, but despite the unbearable loss and grief, he was able to save five other lives by donating his organs. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's uh, impressive. Yeah. Um, and there was also some football news. Uh, yeah, uh, the Dutch have been drawn in a tough group uh, for if they want to qualify for the 2024 European Championships. Uh, they're up against world champions France, the Republic of Ireland and Greece, uh, as well as Gibraltar for the second time in two mm. qualifying campaigns. <laughs> uh, they'll be playing the Monkeys. Uh, Ireland will stir some unhappy memories for Louis van Gaal uh, of losing to a 10-man team in Dublin in 2001, which he's since said was the lowest point of his career. Um, but uh, the good news for Orania is they only have to finish in the top two and even if they don't they'll get another chance because uh, they uh, won their group in the UEFA Nations League so it's good for something Um, and in club football in the Champions League Ajax managed to avoid a second humiliation in a week at the hands of Napoli Um, it looked ominous when Napoli went 2-0 up in the first 15 minutes but Ajax did actually make a bit of a contest of it this time they came back to 3-2 with a penalty before an absolute howler by Daly Blint gifted Napoli a fourth goal and uh, it ended 4-2 so that means after Christmas Ajax will almost certainly play in the Europa League uh, where they will be meeting PSV uh, Ruth van Nistelrooy's side routed FC Zurich for the second time in a week. They won 5-0 in Eindhoven. Feyenoord are still in contention after drawing two all at home with Danish side Mitterland. Uh, and Azeta made things a bit complicated for themselves. In the Conference League, they lost 1-0 in Cyprus to Apollon Limassol. So, uh, but um, the, the, the other two sides in their group, Dnipro 1 of, uh, of Ukraine and FC Vaduz of Liechtenstein, uh, drew their match one all. So Azeta still have uh, four points advantage with two games left 
So we have Gibraltar, we have Liechtenstein. <laughs> uh, are we also playing against uh, Vatican City at some yeah, Andorra, point? Andorra, I think, coming up Andorra, as well at some point yeah, as well. Yeah, 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 the Faroe yeah. Island, Islands, the Tiny Nations League, and perhaps that's the, a... Yeah. The Mini Nations League. Well, there's a yeah. thing called the, uh, the, the, the... There's like a sort of an Olympics for small countries, or for uh, the Island Games, I think. Uh-huh. Or, or something which includes places like San Marino and Andorra, but also places like uh, like the Shetland Islands and uh, uh-huh. yeah. Micronesia, yeah, countries exactly. like that. Yeah, nice. Police in Alphen aan de Rijn are investigating an attempt to break out of the local prison using bedsheets knotted together to climb over the wall. I love it when uh, people revive old traditions, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some uh, that's uh, that's really nice. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, later on, I don't think you will find this nice at all. No. Okay. Um, the would-be escapee managed to get out of his cell by removing a window and bars, but was spotted before he could use his makeshift rope to leave the prison grounds altogether. Photos show he had thrown the rope from the roof of the jail over the wall, but was prompted. But this prompted the alarm, and prison guards were quickly on the spot to prevent the man from escaping. The man has now been placed in an isolation unit, and according to the prison, no one else was involved in the escape attempt. But according to the Algemeen Dagblad, a second person was arrested outside the jail, and there may have been a getaway car waiting nearby. That car has been confiscated by the police as part of the investigation. And the Telegraaf reported on Thursday that the man who tried to escape still had 17 years to go in prison. He was convicted last year of the so-called mortar top murder. The 33-year-old man had murdered a Belgian plumber together with two women who believed he kept a large amount of money in his house. Uh, The man was tortured and later killed, after which his remains were partly burned and put in the tub, which was filled with concrete and later dumped in a local canal. So, uh, pretty gruesome. Yeah, yeah, very gruesome. Uh, Luckily, this man did not uh, manage to escape, um, uh, thanks to uh, people who work with... uh, uh, (laughs) People who work with concrete are very happy about that. I yeah, think. indeed. Yeah, you, you have to, you know, you know, lucky for all of us that these, that these escape plans weren't as meticulous as his plans for actually uh, carrying out the murder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I'm guessing the prison guards now will be, will be checking any cakes that come in to make sure there are no files <laughs> inside, and uh, and not giving him any teaspoons in case he tries to dig a tunnel. So. I, don't, yeah. don't, I kind of feel like the footage of this should have been released in black and white, right? Like a sort of yeah. <laughs> and, I, I just wonder how he was able to remove a window. Yeah, and that's, the bars. that's that as I well. Mean, the whole yeah. point of the well, maybe he did have a it, file in the cake then. I don't know. Yeah, maybe yeah, filed, yeah. filed the bars away. That's all the death and destruction we have for you this week. <laughs> this podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes, and you can get in touch with us by email to podcast.dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can now also back us on Patreon, uh, if you feel so inclined, at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl, and earn yourself a free shout-out on the podcast and unlock all our exclusive members' content. My thanks to Paul Peters, I'm Gordon Darach, and we'll be back next week. (music) 